So open up to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that. You may not realize it, but the last few times that I've had the opportunity to, to share uh, with you, I've tried to have a logical direction, uh, like a flow of thought. Now, we first went to Deuteronomy 6, and we talked about how discipleship begins in the home. Uh, we talked about the parents' first mission field is right in front of them. They are called to teach their children, to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And after that, we went to Titus chapter 2. And we saw how discipleship continues in the church. There's a mission field of people right in front of us here. And if we're going to be successful in passing on uh, the wondrous deeds of God to the next generation, there has to be spiritually healthy, qualified, older saints who are engaged in the body, teaching and mentoring the younger men and women. You may also remember the color orange. The color orange is significant because we look at uh, the in spiritual influence of the home and of families, and, and red is the color that symbolizes that, the blood ties of family. And then we have yellow as the light of Christ and the church. And when you take those two together, you get the color orange. And it shows us that both of those elements are crucial, working in tandem with each other if we are going to be effective disciplers. And only when we are discipling in our homes and in our, we are discipling right in our churches can we have a testimony in the community out in the world. Because if we can't take care of our own, how can God bless us with more to care for and disciple from the world? And so today I'd like to return back to Titus chapter 2 because there are still some gold nuggets that I want to keep digging for. And we've talked about some of these things. We talked about the spiritual responsibility to parents and the older saints in regard to discipleship. But today I'd like to look at different facets of this passage uh, and eventually we'll hone in on what Paul is conveying to the younger Christians, to the younger men and women. And so we're going to read through um, all of Titus 2 for context. And it's going to list five, uh, five specific groups. It's going to mention older men. It's going to mention older women. It's going to mention younger men and younger women. And then also it talks about bond servants or the slaves because a third of the Roman Empire, when this is going on, uh, a third of the people were actually slaves. And so it kind of had a, like its own distinctive um, area that it, Paul was addressing too. But we're not going to have time to address that, even though it warrants special uh, you know, in, inter, introspection into that because it is a beautiful uh, part of this passage as well. But just, again, sake of time, we're not going to be able to hit that. Um, so the book of Titus is often referred to and looked at as a book on leadership. And it makes sense because Paul, a leader, is writing to Titus, who is also a leader. And uh, Titus is a Gentile believer. He was a co-worker of Paul. And Paul is commissioning Titus to stay in Crete and to address the chaos that is in, church, in the church at that time. It's no, um, no surprise that there's chaos because the Cretans were renowned for being live, lying, thieving, lazy gluttons, and there was plenty of false te teachers that were reaching, wreaking havoc in both the church and also within the home. And so, uh, again, it's easy to look at this book and see that is, think that it is a book just simply about leadership, and it is, and it's an important part, but it also is so much more. I love the book of Titus because what it is really doing is more, it's more than just talking about leadership. It is raising the bar. It is painting a beautiful picture of what the church body is when everyone is living a spiritually healthy, qualified life and faithfully playing the role that God has placed them in. 
And uh, he lists qualifications for pretty much all the adults in the church, not just for the leaders. And when I say all the adults, I want to make sure you understand by what, what I mean when I say adults. When I say adults, I mean from the age of 12 and 13 on. And that might blow some of your minds, but that's because in the Jewish culture and tradition, at the age of 12 for young ladies or 13 for young men, they left childhood and put it behind them and stepped into adulthood. They were now considered spiritually, socially, um, you know, responsible. They were considered to be adults. There's children and adults. And so uh, when we're talking about adults today, we're talking to you as teens as well. And so this is a great opportunity for all of you teenagers who are in here, 12, 13 up, to turn to your parents and say, hey, mom and dad, you hear that? The Bible says I'm an adult and uh, get all the uh, privileges that come with that. But this is also a great time. I'll save you parents some time in response. Turn to your kids and say, well, if you're an adult, you need to start acting like one. And so both of you are right and both of those are biblical. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want you to know that these, these lists of qualifications for each one of these groups is not comprehensive or exhaustive. It is not giving you all the qualifications and, and spiritual characters, uh, traits that should be present in each one of these groups. It's, it is bigger than what is listed here. Paul is writing to combat the false teachers uh, and the practical ramifications those teachings were having on these specific groups within the church and homes in Crete. And so, for instance, when Paul tells the older women not to be slaves to much, line, to much wine, we make the, uh, the, the uh, jump in logic there that there are women, older women, who are given to drinking too much wine. You get, you get the connection there. That's what's happening. And so we must also note that while these lists seem to be specifically directed to each group and the deficiencies that each group had, there also is a sense that each one of these lists build on each other and flow from one and to another and are applicable to everybody. And so when Paul tells the older women not to slander, but then he doesn't go and tell the men that, that doesn't give the guys a loophole to say, hey, only the women are you know, the slanderers and we can do whatever we want. That's not the intent. Uh, Paul is, is mentioning some of the specific deficiencies in a group, but in mentioning them, a lot of these apply to everyone. Uh, he uses the term likewise multiple times to convey this building up, and it culminates in verse 11 through 12, where it talks about the qualifications for all believers. And so we have specific qualifications for groups, but really they're all building in together. There's not any real unique ones that don't apply unless they're to specific like gender roles and that sort of thing. Uh, most of them apply to everyone. And uh, so really in this passage, we have an amazing challenge for the church. Um, and uh, before we get to that, though, I hope you, did you have opportunity to turn to Titus chapter 2? Okay, let's go ahead and start reading through Titus chapter 2, and then we'll jump into things here. Titus chapter 2 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine, what he's going to be talking about. Now, older men, all you older men, we should have a lot of hands in this service here. All you older men, raise your hands because this is you. If you're 60 years or older or there, thereabouts, raise your hand. Oh, come on, guys. All right. Keep them, no, keep them up because you've got to identify with what I'm reading right here. And I want everybody to realize this is God's spiritual expectations for all of these men with their hands raised. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sounded faith, and love, and steadfastness. All you older men can put your hands down. I learned from an older man that I should never put an older woman on the spot to share her age. But if you would like two older ladies to raise your hand if you're 60 years or older, or just raise it in your heart, feel free. Older women, you know who you are. Likewise, see he's building. Likewise, older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. You can put your hands down now, older ladies. Thank you. In verse 4 it says, And so trained, guess who's next? Younger women, fewer 12 or older ladies, uh, 12 to 60 there, you can raise your hands. Come on, I see a lot of lazy ladies out there. All right, getting those hands up. Yes, thank you, daughter. Set an example. Okay, I think we got most of them. This is you. Young women need to love your husbands and children and be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay, you can put your hands down. Younger men, 13 up to 60. There I see. Okay, there they are. Got them. Greg, there we go. Don't make me call you out. There we go. Got them all. Thank you, sound booth. I see those hands. Likewise, younger men, be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You can put your hands down now, younger men. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See how he's broadening it out now? Training all of us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and for all of us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And all of us are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That'd be a great mission statement for a church. So who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. The stuff is important stuff. And so in this passage, we have an amazing challenge for the church to turn a church of chaos into a church of order, to turn a community of lying, thieving, lazy gluttons who followed false teachers into a community of believers who are engaged, learning, and growing, and ministering together and glorifying God. The bar is being set high, not just for leaders, but for all of us if we are to be a bride fit for Christ. And so how is Titus supposed to turn the ship from being a, a church of chaos and disorder to a church that is ordered and glorifying God? And it's a really good question. In the first chapter of, of Titus, we see that the, the first step in that was appointing spiritually qualified elders, spiritually qualified leadership in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I'm going to read, read through you the list of qualifications for the elder leadership in the church. And I want you to see if anything sounds different from 
the, from some of the list of stuff that we just read for everyone else in the church. So it says for qualified elders, they need to be above reproach. I think God wants us all to be above reproach, right? Faithfully married to one wife, faithful in their marriages, right? Uh, children walking with the Lord. I think that's what God desires for all of us in discipling our children and our families and our home there. Not arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, holding firm to the word of God and teaching and rebuking. So this list doesn't really sound a lot different from the basic expectations that God has for all Christians. And much of what is stated for leaders here is also stated in other uh, scriptures for all, adult, for all adults. And so that's an, a really important distinction to make. Why is that? That's because the same, and I want you to listen to this carefully, the same standard that God has given to leaders is the same standard that he has given to each one of you. Did you get that? The same standard that God has given to leaders is the same standard that he has given to each one of you. The only difference is that God has called leaders to go first. That's the essential difference. God has called leaders to go first, but the standard is the same. Practically, what does that mean? Whenever you think, whatever you think God's spiritual expectations are for, let's say, Pastor Tom, those are the same spiritual expectations that God has for you. Well, I'll, I'll put a little caveat in there and say, except for the uncanny ability that Pastor Tom has to take a word, and any word, and make a sermon outline out of it. I think God will give you an out on that one. But seriously, is there anything that God called former Pastor Tom to do that was any different that he has called any one of us to do? The knowledge of God's word, the ministry focus, the dedication, the hard work, any of it. What is different from what God called Pastor Tom to do than what he has called any of us to do in the church? Is there any difference? I mean, just think about it. What is different between what the spiritual expectations that God put on some of our missionaries, the Meneers or the Santoses that came the last two weeks, that are different than the expectations and qualifications he expects us to live up to as believers? Are there any difference in the spiritual qualifications that God expects of John Piper or of Billy Graham that he expects for any of us as believers? It will be very difficult for you to go and look at Scripture and, and point to something that only applies to leadership that does not apply to the rest of, body, of the body of Christ. I read this book uh, a few years back, uh, back in the early 2000s sometimes, called Do Hard Things. It's a really good book. I liked it. I recommend it for teens. and It, it challenges some of, uh, some of our ideas of the teenage years. What it did, it's actually written by two teenage boys. They were twins, Alex and Brett Harris. They wrote it while they were 17 or 18. And uh, they were looking at this passage in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, I think it said. Uh, uh, where was it? Anyways, it says, uh, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I think it was 1 Corinthians 13. I spoke as a child, I acted as a child, but then I became a man and put away childish things. And so we look at Scripture and we see for, for uh, you know, in Scripture, we see that there were children and that there were adults. And there was not this, like, middle stage of distinction where you are definitely not a child anymore, but you're definitely not an adult. You're kind of in this, like, no man's land of undistinctiveness. 
This term that we use called teenager didn't come along until 1941, 1942, and it was coined, I believe, in a Reader's Digest article that referred to this stage that we had created in life where people looked like adults, but they weren't expected to act like adults. We talk, uh, called them teenagers. Part of it was in response to some of the child labor laws earlier on in the century because children were working in factories and needed to stop, and so laws were made that were good that prevented that, but, and educational you know, uh, expectations were extended, and so we've created this period of time where kids were no longer kids, but they were no longer adults. They were teenagers, and we created this period of time where there was, there was uh, you know, freedom, there was uh, rebellion, there was low expectations for, for teenagers. And, you know, it just became this uh, very negative, potentially negative things uh, for, for our teenagers. I feel like we've done something similar in the church where we've created various levels of spirituality where we live up to and we attain, whether there's one for the kids and there's one for the leaders in the church and then some place in between for everyone else. But in the process, we have been less with Christian teenagers who are struggling to enter into adult Christian adulthood. You get what I'm saying here? We got teenagers, you know, that are struggling to enter into adulthood. Some are staying home, living with their parents on and on until their 30s and 40s, struggling to move into adulthood. And we have the same thing going on in the church. We have spiritual Christian teenagers who look like adults, sound like adults, and yet they haven't matured to the point that God expects us to. He has raised the bar high, and we've got to acknowledge that. We've got to acknowledge that. Uh, this passage here in Hebrews 5.11 helps clarify this a little bit. It says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now just imagine a parent talking to a teenager as, you, as, we, as I read this passage here from a, uh, Hebrews 11. You've become dull of hearing. Parents, have you ever said that to a, teenage, to a teenager in your home? Perhaps. Uh, just listen. Aren't you listening? Become dull of hearing. So you get in kind of the mood here. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You should have a job. You know, you should have, you should, uh, you know, be out working. You should have been graduated by now. You should have your own home. And Paul is kind of talking to him, or I'm sorry, the, the writer of Hebrews is talking to him the same way, being like, guys, you're, you're not where you should be. You're, you're not listening. You should be teachers by this point. And yet, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Did you get that? The writer of Hebrews just said there's all these people in churches who are going to church, sitting in pews, going to Sunday school, doing the whole church thing, and yet they're spiritual teenagers. They're not children for sure, but they're acting like children in adult bodies because by this point they should be teaching. It says, but solid food is for the mature. That's what we're called to be. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That is what a mature believer looks like. So basically, again, the writer of Hebrews is saying we've got all these Christian teenagers within the church. They look like adults, but they're still acting like children. And in this letter to Titus, Paul is calling for the, for the Christian adults in the church to grow up. 
We need qualified leaders, but we also need biblically qualified spiritual church community. Now, I'm going to go through some of the qualifications for older men and talk through them and older women. We're going to breeze through those a little quick, more quickly this morning because we talked about them last time. But uh, starting off in chapter 2, verse 2, it says older men. And you've got to know this older men because this is what you are, this is the foundation of, that gives you the ability to be able to teach the younger generation. And this is what you are also teaching. So this matters. Older men, you need to be sober-minded. That, just do, that doesn't mean you just don't drink alcohol. It's not just talking about sobriety in, in beverage choices that you're using and being controlled by alcohol. This is talking about anything that takes your mind away from the game, that disconnects you from what God has called you to do as a Christian man. Sober-minded means that you do not let your pride, you do not let your arrogance, you do not let your desire for wealth, your desire for public recognition, you do not, desi- you do not let any of these things to prevent your clear thinking about what God has called you to do as an older man and what your job is. That's what it means to be sober-minded. It is getting your attention and your focus and saying, look, pay attention, think. It says, be dignified. I think that dignified sometimes is one of those things where it's like kind of proud and arrogant. But dignified is, is being able to have the wisdom and the discernment of what is good and evil and looking down and seeing you know, like kids fighting and, and knowing that I'm not getting involved in that fight. That's stupid. That's not where God has us. That's not what we should be fighting about. Dignified is being able to step back and look and being able to discern uh, in a mature way where, what the true battles are and where they're not and not getting entangled in Satan's schemes to divide the church. That's dignity. It's not this false sense of arrogance and pride. It says, do not be, uh, it says, be self-controlled. We're going to talk about that more with our younger men because there's, uh, it's unpacked a lot in there. Oh, the younger men, and, and it says, be sound in faith and in love and steadfastness. Older men, you're setting the bar high. Older women, it says, likewise. So it's building on that list. It says, be reverent. The idea of reverent is, is holy. It's the same kind of idea of if you went into the, the temple and all of its priests and all the holy set apart, uh, you know, furniture and, and utensils within that temple, you would act differently going within that. And it's saying, older women, be reverent in your behavior. If you are reverent, you're not going to go into this temple setting and go and slander anyone. You would not go and be drunk within the temple. You would be reverent in your behavior. It's interesting because this term slanderer is the same term that is used for Satan, the slanderer, the accuser of God's people, the false accuser, and trying to condemn us as Christians. And it's saying, older women, do not associate yourself uh, with Satan by slandering those around you, whether uh, behind their backs or to their faces. Slandering is aligning yourself with Satan, and that is something that destroys God's church. We cannot afford slandering, whether whatever we disguise it as, as special prayer requests or whatever else. We have to guard our tongues and our mouths and not slander and not be slaves to much wine. And it says, older women, you need to be teachers of good. And that just blows the doors off. What are you supposed to be teaching the younger women? All things that are good. And there's a lot of them. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let one, no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, and love, and faith, and purity. 
Now, that was written to a young believer back in the day, to Timothy, a leader in the church. Paul said, don't let anyone look down on you in your youth. But honestly, today I think we've got the reverse problem. I think we look down on our older Christians and the older generation. And I think we need to change this verse, not in its intent, but in helping us realize that, old folks, you cannot let people look down on you and your elderliness. Don't let anyone look down on your age. But Paul is calling you here to be the example in life and love and faith and purity within the church. You are the teachers of what is good to the next generation. Your role in, in communicating the wondrous deeds of God to the next generation is indispensable. Indispensable. And so in verse 4 it continues and it says, And so train. That's your job. And so train. Training is born out of faithful practice and experience. Old age alone does not qualify you by itself. When you are faithfully living out God's truth and his word in your life, that equips you to be able to pass that down to the next generation. And so older Christians' involvement in younger Christians' lives is imperative. Older Christians have to be willing and younger Christians have to be willing. And honestly, I think this is the bridge that is crumbling in our church today. And I think we're doing a lot of Satan's work for him within the church. We just do it without thinking. We do it just naturally. That's kind of just what we do. I mean, if you just go into just about any church and you look around, you'll, you'll go in and you look and you see that Sunday schools are divided by ages. All the children are separate. The youth are separate. And then we've got the, old, the younger uh, adults. Then we've got the middle-aged adults. And then we have older, older adults. We separate them all out. We're doing some of Satan's work. I'm not saying we cannot ever divide out by ages. But I'm saying when that becomes our habit within the church and our default, I'm saying we are tearing down one of the very things that God wants to use in the sanctification of his people, that relationship that the old have with the young. I remember going into uh, a church once, and I went in, and uh, it was back in Chicago. I was going to college at Moody Bible Institute. I was with college students, Bible college students all the time, and I was just like, I want to get away from them, I want to get to a church, and I want to be with just, you know, normal people, just regular adults. That's all I wanted to. And I went and found a good church. I went there, I found a Sunday school class, fit the ticket, a lot of uh, older people than I was. I went in there, I was ready to sit down and just get connected and involved. And a well-meaning person, I don't doubt their, in, their intent at all, well-meaning person came up to me and was like, oh, ex excuse me, you know, uh, there's a, a, another class Sunday school for a class for you down the hall. That's for people your age. Don't think the intent was bad at all, trying to be helpful. But it kind of accentuated the, the, the default mode that we have, that we think that, that we should prefer being in groups just like us, that look like us, act like us, talk like us, like the same worship, whatever else it does. We kind of divide ourselves into these groups. And it's like I'm trying to, you know, I was as a young man trying to break through that and was finding struggles of, you know, the older folks being, and I'm sure if I would have explained this, I'd like to think they would have accepted me in. But it's just kind of like we default into this mode where we, we divide ourselves. I was thinking about this this past week of just ways that Satan divides the church, divides this generational discipleship that is essential for all of our sanctification process. I was thinking uh, 
at, at nighttime at our house, we like to sit down and we eat dinner together. And without fail, every night when it's time to eat, everybody's called to the table, I start hearing all my girls say, next to dad, next to mom, I'm at the right next to mom, I'm at the right next to dad, you know, and they, they'll start calling all their spots at the table. And some of your, your homes might have been similar to that, whether it was at the table or in the car. Kids, I don't know why, but there's ideal spots that everybody wants to sit. But I got to say, as a father, I always liked it when they're like, I'm sitting next to dad. Because I'm like, oh, yeah. And somebody else says, I'm on the other side of dad. I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, it makes me feel kind of proud. I'm like, my kids want to be close to me. That honors me, and I love it. And I want them to always want to sit close to me. I, I embrace that and encourage it. It's a beautiful thing that I love that happens on a regular basis in my home. But then something happens. As my kids are, are you know, calling the spots to come and sit next to me, very quickly it turns from, I'm sitting next to dad, I'm sitting on the other side next to dad. It turns into, hold on, you got to last night. It's my turn to sit next to dad. And, you, and they have these whole set of rules and legalities. I don't know how they work. At least maybe you can explain them to me someday. But they got their whole like legalized method about why somebody is justified in sitting there tonight and somebody else is not. And they'll argue, and then sometimes it results into fighting. Now, they're not physically fighting, but they're verbally fighting with each other. And I get to that point as a parent that I'm like, whoa. What? It's like, what just happened there? I was honored. I was blessed by my children want to be close to me, and all of a sudden they started fighting. They took something that was meant to be a blessing of relationship and closeness and turned it into a cursing. They could turn it into the point where I was like, I don't even want to sit next to any of you anymore. In fact, I might just go to a different room and go eat by myself if this is the way that you're going to relate to each other. I can't help but think that God looks at us as a church in the same exact way with when it comes to worship. We talk about a worship a lot, and I'm going to keep bringing it up as long as I hear this being a divisive issue within our church. Because we take something that is meant to be glorifying and worshipful to God, and yet we take it and we start fighting over it. I've heard it from young people, and I've heard it from old people, and it's gone. As long as I've been in ministry, I've heard it, and to a certain degree, I expect it to continue. But at a certain point, we have to stop it in our church. Because this is a sign of our immaturity. This is a sign of us taking something very blessed by God that we are called to do as a church, and Satan is using it as an item to divide us and divide us and to separate us from each other. That is a problem. That does not bring honor to God. I cannot praise God with my worship to him while I am condemning and fighting with other brothers particularly younger brothers that we are called to help, to help mature and to grow in the relationship with Christ, I cannot honor God in my own worship when I am demeaning someone else's. And that goes both ways, whether older, younger, or younger to older. That does not honor God. That is sinful, and that brings chaos to the church. We have to catch ourselves We have to catch others. We have to stop ourselves and remember that all songs were new songs at some time. Even the old hymns were bar tunes. You know, they were scandalous to someone at some point in time. And there, you know, we have to look at them for what they are and say, what are the words like? Are they honor and glorifying to God? 
And that's the main thing. Is it ushering people in to honor and glorify God? And same with the new songs. Are they, are they true? Are they true? Are they biblical? And they're ushering people in to worship God. And when we're sitting there arguing, fighting over worship, it is we are doing Satan's job for him. And I like to think this is the last time we have to address this, but I'm scared it's not. We've got to stop this fight within the church because it is dividing us. When we talk about starting new, you know, having two services and one service and some of this, some of the conversation is like, well, let's do two services because then the old people can have their service and the young people can have their service. What did that just do to this passage? What did we just do? We just removed the sanctifying influence that God has intended each of these groups to play in each other's lives. We've separated them apart. And it's not that we can't have our unique worship and come together. It's not that we can't ever do that. But guys, if we're playing this game, it's going to destroy us. As It's going to destroy our testimony and our witness to the world. So older saints, you have to check your hearts. Younger saints, you also need to check your hearts. To be a spiritually qualified young person, we're going to be switching gears here to the, to the younger group, we have to recognize and embrace the fact that God has placed older saints in our lives to help us grow up. God has given you Jesus. He's given you the word. He's given you his spirit. He's given you prayer, meditation, and he is giving you older saints. Young people, you need to, I need to, we need to embrace what God has intended the role for older saints to play in our lives. Not to reject it, because that's rejecting God's plan for us. We need to willingly embrace that. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Be subject to them. And in this context, it's probably talking more about the leadership within the church, but it broadens it out a little bit, and it says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Um, humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if, if this is going to be true in our lives as young people, we've got to be humble and submissive and invite these relationships into our lives. So for application, uh, actually, before we get to that, I want to encourage you young people, do not dismiss the older saints, the role that older saints play in your life. And this is the reason why is because if you dismiss the role older saints play in your life, guess what's going to happen to you as you grow older? You will be dismissed. If you play this game of saying that older people no longer have you know, significant contribution to the church, do not have, you know, are disconnected or whatever, pushing them aside and relegating them to a place of obscurity, if we do that, you're, you're accepting this truth for your life. That whatever God is doing is not building into something more and more beautiful and more and more reflective of God's glory. You're saying that everything from now on in my life is downhill, less valuable, less applicable, and less God-glorifying than what I am at this point. That is not a model for growth. That is a model that sets us up for immaturity. Do not buy into this lie that Satan tells us, that tells us that, that the older generation is... is um, disconnected or not as meaningful uh, in our lives because if we do that, we are dooming ourselves to that same fate. So for application, we're going to look briefly at some of the things the older saints are supposed to instruct the younger saints. 
and doing. And again, this is not a comprehensive list. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, young women, you need to love your husbands and children. Need to be self-controlled, pure, laborers in the home, kind and submissive to your husband. I looked at this list and it starts off okay. You know, you're like, love your husband. And it says, love your children. That's pretty easy. But then I'm like, Paul, do you realize who's going to be reading this passage later on? Because it starts talking about workers in the home and submissive to your uh, husbands. Like, that's kind of like a, a minefield for us today to even talk about such things. Paul didn't know that we would be reading this and that it would be a minefield for us today, but God did. And I think there's some beautiful, uh, beautiful things for us to learn and grow from, particularly for our young women today from this passage, and I want to talk through some of them. First off, it says, love your husbands. You've got to realize, you know, for, for us, we're like, of course you're supposed to love your husband. Why wouldn't you love your husband? You pick your husband. You know, you go and you find him, so you kind of got a leg up. Back in this time, you didn't always get to pick your husbands. There was a lot of arranged marriages, weren't there? A lot of arranged marriages. So you might not have even been married to someone that you liked to begin with. They might have been picked by somebody else. And you might have nothing in common, nothing similar, no future you know, goals and dreams in common to give you a, you know, a basic foundation here. And so when it says love your husbands, you're like, yeah, there's probably a great need for them to be taught how to love your, their husbands. It was also first generation of Christians. And so a lot of the women who became Christians um, might not have even been married to a Christian man. They had to be taught to love their husbands. And we say today, people get to choose their spouses, and we like to think that that solves all the problems. But are our young women in any less need of learning to love their husbands? No, because we look at the divorce rate, and I don't think picking has really helped us in that, in that in endeavor of loving our spouses. We have to learn. Love has to be something that is taught, and it is taught best by the older saints living out faithful marriages that honor God and showing that example to the younger ones. And so, younger women, you need to love your husbands. It also says, younger women, you need to love your children. Again, at this time, you think that, that, that this is a no-brainer. Of course you're going to love your children. But the, the um, mortality rate for women in childbirth was very high. It was not uncommon or unusual for a man to have, you know, either multiple wives all at once, polygamy, or also to have a wife that died and in childbirth have kids that transferred one marriage to another marriage. And so the kids that she did have were not necessarily her own. That's true in today's time frame also, where we, we have, you know, marriages that are broken, mixed marriages, and, you know, a lot of these dynamics that happen that you find yourself with children that might not be the easiest to love. And older women, it is your responsibility in the church to be teaching our younger women how to love their children, how to love. It doesn't always come natural. Even if they are your own children, it is still hard to love them the way that the Bible says to love. Because the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. And yet we have a lot of parents and moms who are like, oh, I can't, I can't discipline them. You know, I love them too much to put them in timeout or spank them or whatever else it might be. I love them too much. And they're like, no, that's not God's love. They have to be taught how to love their husbands and how to love their children. And older women, this is your biblical responsibility. This has not been relegated just to pastors this is, this is something that's hard for us as men to always know how to speak into. 
You know, I've kind of got a conflict of interest when I go to my wife and say, this is how you're supposed to love me. You know, it's like, it's, it comes a lot better when you have these women who experience some of the hardships and some of the stubbornness that I portray. Or, you know, you, you can come alongside of Eunice and encourage her in those ways. And so God has called you as older women to this role. It says also, uh, younger women, you need to be workers in the home. This is super volatile. In our, in our culture right now, that is a job that is looked down on and demeaned. But the, pri- the home is not a prison. All you have to do is look at Proverbs 31 and see that the home is a beautiful place where the, the wife in the home is, is, is not bound to just doing dishes and laundry. It's something that she is a blessing to her husband. She is a blessing to her children. She is... Uh, you know, doing engaged in commerce in the community, and she is, I mean, she's just doing it all. It's not a prison. The home is meant to be a beautiful place of blessing. And so when it's saying a worker in the home, it is not trying to demean and trying to hold women down. It's, this is a position of honor. Just think about Potiphar and Joseph. When in Scripture, when we look at that story, when Potiphar uh, raised Joseph up and set him in charge of his whole entire household. We were like, oh, that's horrible. Oh, poor Joseph. So demeaning. How can he, how can he show his face in public? So disrespectful of him to do that. No, we're like, hey, awesome. God exalted him to this position. This position for women being workers in the home, young women, is a position of of greatness. It's a position of importance, a position of value. I don't know about you, but my home and my family are the most important possessions, and I wouldn't want anyone else to care for my kids than Eunice. I don't want to leave in the morning, and I don't want, I, I don't want to leave in the morning, and I can't wait to get home at night. And I owe that in large part to my wife, Eunice. When we devalue the home, listen to this carefully, when we devalue the home and our children and our families, we can't help but devalue mothers and young women. You devalue the home, you devalue the role that God has called them to in the home. That's the problem. Not that we're oppressing women and saying, you know, your, your spot's there. The problem is we're saying the home is not important. The government will teach your kids. The government will take care of this and that and the other. Women need to go and work. That's not the truth of it. The, va- the home is valuable and is an essential part of discipleship. And we can't just go and farm out those responsibilities to anyone else to do. That is the role and responsibility that God has called for each one of us. And so my home is valuable. And Eunice's job is just as important and just as spiritual and just as God-honoring as my job is here in the church. And my wife's role in caring for our home is more important than any executive position that she could hold at Target or Starbucks or anywhere else. That's how valuable the home is in Scripture and to the Lord. It says also for young women, be submissive to your husbands or husband, make sure I make that singular. We got to look at this. It's another one of those things that it's like, that's a bad thing. But submission in Scripture is one of the most beautiful things that we can do. And submission is not something that is unique just to women. Submission is something that Jesus Christ himself demonstrated to God the Father. Submission is something that the church 
demonstrates to Christ as the head of the church. Submission, like we read in 1 Peter 5, is something that young men are demonstrating to their leaders, to their elders. Submission is something in Ephesians 5 that it says that all believers are called to do for each other. Submit to one another. Submission is not a bad, dirty, demeaning term. It is a term that is packed with humility and love and care and service for the other person and honor of the other person. Isn't that what God has called us to? And that is all wrapped up in this term submit. It is not demeaning. There's nowhere in Scripture that says men force your wife to submit. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that women need to submit to all men. It's just to their husbands. Women, if you have a problem submitting to your husband, don't get married. That's simple. You don't have to get married. Don't. There's a beauty in a life of singleness, being singly devoted to the, to the Lord and his purposes. But submission is, is a beautiful term that is used throughout Scripture, and we can't keep letting culture make this into a bad thing. It is a beautiful term, and we've got to view it as such and teach it as such. And older women, that is your role. Young men, let's pick on them a little bit. We had quite the list. Notice this. There was quite the list for the, the younger women, wasn't there? Young men, it just has one verse that says, young men be self-controlled. That doesn't really seem fair that Paul was spending so much time on the, on the younger women there and the older women and care for them. And then he's just like, guys, be self-controlled. Like, what's going on there? That's a little bit weird. I think it's partly because, you know, women are spaghetti and guys are waffles. And guys are like single-celled waffles, you know, we just need something very simple and basic for us to focus on and do that we can, like, actually keep our attention on. I think there's a little bit of that possibly going, uh, going on here. But he says, guys, be self-controlled. That was also uh, something that is, the older men were called to do and all of us are called to do is be self-controlled. I think the reason for that, my old pastor back in Arizona, Steve Cole, he, uh, he used this as an example once. He said that he was reading a book called Over the Edge. In this book, um, Over the Edge, it, it chronicled uh, people who had died at the Grand Canyon. Sounds like a good read, doesn't it? And in that, they, they kind of narrowed it down to show that there was one group of people who was most likely to die by falling off the edge at the Grand Canyon. Who do you think it would be? Come on, guys. Younger men! Younger men! It's because... because Younger men are not self-controlled. They're impetuous. They're not thinking right. This term self-controlled literally means to be like to stop and to think, to be sober in their, in their thinking, to stop. And for all of you guys, fathers out there, how many times have you stopped your son and had to say, just stop and think about what you are doing? Stop and think. And so when, when Paul is telling the younger men to be self-controlled, he's like, stop and think about what you're doing. Think about the direction that you're going. Think about how this honors God or hurts yourself or hurts your relationships with others or sets you on a path that will lead to destruction. Stop and think about what is going on here. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying is limited to just this one term, be self-controlled, because he continues on and he says, show yourself, and he's referring to Titus, but Titus is also a young man. And so he continues on and says, show yourself to be a model of good works. Show integrity, show dignity, be sound in speech. 
In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul tells young Timothy, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set a believers an example in speech and conduct and life and love and faith and purity. That is what young men are called to. 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is what young men are called to. And you know what, older men? How are they going to learn to do that? Leaders, godly leaders in the church is part of that, but according to this passage right here, you are part of that also. You have a role to play. I kind of have a question for you. I didn't ask this in first service, but I was thinking about it a little bit. The question is just simple. It's like, who are you doing this with that we just talked to? Who are the younger women, for all you older ladies, who are the younger women in your life that you are doing this with? Older men, who are the younger men in your life that you are doing this with? If you're not doing it, you're a cul-de-sac Christian. You're not going anywhere. Sunday school and church doesn't have a whole lot of purpose and meaning if you're not doing this. Who are those people in your life? If you don't have one, find one. I think that's the kind of the rule of mentorship, right? Don't have one, find one or two. Find those people and be intentional with what God has called you to do. Young men and young women, who are the older men and women in your life? Who can you point to in your life that God is using to help develop these traits in your life? Who can you point to? Again, can't use... Myself, you know, pastors are necessarily, you know, just the pastors for this one. This is older men. This is the body. Look at the body. Who can you point to? If you don't have one, find one. They say that marriage is one of the most sanctifying things that you can do because you live in such close proximity with each other. You know each other so well. You drive each other nuts, and yet you still have to demonstrate the gospel and love and forgiveness with each other. And I think God has chosen intergenerational ministry to help purify us as a church because we do the same as old people and young people together. We drive each other bonkers. We have different ways of thinking as much as men and women do. Old folks and young folks think so differently. And yet, even within that, God has called us to be unified. That is the foundation for our testimony that we are talking to the community how can we tell them that God loves everyone when we can't show that love and togetherness within the body of Christ? We lose our testimony. So what it boils down to is this. For a church to be healthy, everyone has to be equally crucial and significant part, has an equally crucial and significant part to play whether you are young or whether you're old. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have an amazing challenge today for a church in disorder to turn to a church of order, to turn a community of sinners of which we are into a, a community of believers who are engaged learning, growing, ministering together, and glorifying God. The bar is set high, not just for leaders, but for all of us, if we are to be a bride that is fit for Christ.